Hi everyone, welcome to another episode on the FESTA show. Today on the podcast I have Hassan, who is a PhD student in oncology at Cambridge University. His project is investigating the role of protein called CHCHD4 in regulating mitochondrial function and hypoxia signaling using zebrafish, as well as in vitro using tumour cell systems. On the podcast we spoke about how we both met working on COVID-19 together in the largest testing lab in the UK and how it motivated us with our PhD work and an experience that we we're both grateful for and happy to be a part of. We spoke about Hassan's research at Cambridge, and we also spoke about his comedy as well. So let's get straight into it and enjoy. Okay, and we are live, Hassan. So welcome to another podcast episode on the Festa Show. This is, I think it's my fourth, fourth or fifth recording now. And today I have Oxbridge and PhD student at Cambridge, Hassan. How are we doing? Very well, Joe. Very, very well. Thanks for having me on, mate. Yeah, no, that's good. Thank you for coming on. I'm looking forward to it. Should be good. My pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. So before we start, well, normally I kind of, with these podcasts, I, I ask them, tell me about your research and we kind of go down that route. But I think for this episode, we'll actually kind of start off with how we first met. So I don't know if you want to take away with that. Yeah, I mean, it was incredibly romantic. Um, it was uh, in the city of love, Milton Keynes. Um, we got this was back in May or was it June? June, you were, yeah. June. Oh, no, it was, no you must have been before me. So yeah you and me i was june yeah yeah so so yeah so we were working in um well i was working a little bit before joe in this uh coronavirus test center in milton Keynes, which from memory i think is the biggest one in the uk at the time we were like so basically we the the lab would every day receive up to like thirty thousand more than thirty thousand coronavirus test samples that people had done either the home test kits or they'd gone to a drive-through center had their swabs taken swabs got put in a vial with lysis buffer and they got sent to Milton Keynes this big lab that we were all working in and um, yeah and it was our job to process to basically get a result right to do the PCR test polymerase chain reaction um, protocol that um, they use to try and detect whether or not there's one of three viral proteins uh, that are associated with the um, SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus, I think. Um, and so I've been working there for like a month, maybe. Joe joined early June and we met because on your first day, and I remember this when it was my first day, you're paired with someone well actually two people i think yeah that's it. so we so the first job we, the job we were doing was most of the samples when they come in they get sent to an automatic route so there's two routes either automatic or manual to get um, unpacked the automatic they're these big machines we got called tekans that um, automatically transfer the liquid from the sample to a 96 weld plate um but sometimes the samples are leaking or they're not the right type of tube or whatever 
and that means they're not suitable for tech hands. So they said they've got to be done manually, which is where they bring in, I mean, a crack team of SAS style uh, laboratory <laughs> workers like myself and Joe. And, and that was our job. So me and I'm trying to remember her name. Yeah, she was from Oxford I, as well, wasn't she? She was in Oxford. Aisha. No, I remember her name, Aisha. I remember because <laughs> I don't know if you, <laughs> Aisha was really, really nice, but I remember she, Aisha is an Arabic name. Oh, nice. And I remember being so shocked because she did not look Arabic at all. And it turns out she told me that she, her, her parents just really liked the name Aisha. So I was like, you know, always nice to be working with a sister, even though she's not actually. Uh, oh. That's also, I am Arab as well, of course. Yeah. Um, anyways, so Aisha and I were teaching Joe how to do the manual hood which and you, the reason you need two people is because one person perpetuates it manually and the other person watches them yeah purely to make sure they're doing it in the right so they're transferring the sample to the right well because obviously if you don't do that then it's not you're not going to get the right result. Exactly. yeah we have to minimize as much human error as possible you know because we exactly and and i think i should witnessed me doing it and then we swapped and I think you witnessed me doing it and then I witnessed you doing it and I remember <laughs> I remember saying to you um I remember saying uh, I really like your accent and you were like oh you like it do you <laughs> you gotta be careful you know there's people listening from Wales on this Hassan. <laughs> listen I love the Welsh accent I just I I I something you've really find when you're at um Cambridge is that everyone sounds the same right they all they all sound well I mean I didn't think they sounded like me but they all sound a lot posher than me basically um and even you called me a posh twat I mean quite a few times when we were working Milton Keynes with a lot of justification I have to say um but no, so that's one thing I really liked about Milton Keynes was people from all over the country working there all different backgrounds and some PhD students, some of the people that were working in labs for years, some people that don't even work in labs, they're working in boardrooms, they come back to the lab. Different accents, it was great, it was great. I love the Welsh accent, so um, huge amount of love to all, all the people in Swansea. Listen, I'm sure half, half the city's listening to this podcast. Hopefully. But uh, yeah, no, it was kind of a great experience. And like you said as well, we had a range of people you know, from industry, academia, PhD students, and we were all there for the same job really and just to kind of all play our part I guess if you want to say that and just trying to help the country with the the COVID-19 testing and I'm just yeah, incredible. yeah it was well you know it's an experience you remember for life isn't it it's not it's it's still quite crazy to believe now I don't know if you think the same absolutely yeah I mean I it was mad because I just remember getting an email in March and asking you know people to work there sending you know doing that application form and then literally one day i got a call saying tomorrow we need you tomorrow in milton Keynes. pack your bags and for three months i lived in a holiday inn in milton Keynes. and i'll tell you as well uh, my friends couldn't stop laughing at me not telling the story my hotel room was so small i should have asked for a big one it was so small no fridge no kitchen, no laundry facilities, nothing. Just me and a PlayStation 4 keeping me sane. And I remember every single day I used to wake up, I used to open the curtains, and, <laughs> and there's a massive shopping center with a massive sign that says, 
into Milton Keynes. So I never forgot. <laughs> I never, ever forgot where I was. You are in Milton. And, and the worst thing was, even when we were doing night shifts, so we used to work these 12 hour night shifts. Honestly, it was, it was incredible. It was really incredible because obviously the, the Milton Keynes test center was going 24 seven, wasn't it? Yeah. It's always a shift going on. So we would do the night shifts that would be 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. And then a swap. People would be working 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. And then we'd be back the next day, 8 p.m. And we'd do that for two or three shifts at a time. And then we'd have a break of two days or a break of three days. And I remember even on our breaks, the, when we were doing night shifts, I'd be up at night. Obviously, they kept the sign on. So even at 3 a.m., I'm playing my PlayStation. I just look on the right. Oh. Yeah, Milton Keynes. Don't don't forget. Lovely place though. Really, really, really underrated place. It gets a bad rep. I I actually really liked it. But during lockdown, I mean, anywhere was grim, wasn't it? Yeah, no, that's true. I just couldn't believe how many roundabouts there were. I remember the first time I drove there, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is like, I don't know. It's it's just I couldn't get over it. There was like, it was a ten minute drive from the Holiday Inn where we were living uh, to the test center, and I think there was about within ten minutes six roundabouts. And the whole four months I worked there, I had to use a sat-nav the whole time. Yeah, I remember. I never not used a sat-nav. So, yeah, it was, it was yeah. amazing. It was, uh, Joe's a very popular, of all the listeners in Swansea, Joe's a very, very popular boy in Milton Keynes, I have to say. Not just because he gave us lifts, but he represented the Welsh people. Because I don't think there was anyone else Welsh. Or was there maybe someone else? I remember one... Yeah, there was someone else. I can't remember her name, actually. They will come back to me. Oh, oh no, it was... Yeah, there was someone, but I think she went to uni. Oh, no, she was, it was Anne-Marie. Anne-Marie, Anne-Marie. Was yeah, sorry. Completely forgot that. Sorry. Um, but she didn't have quite quite a, a beautiful, quite as beautiful an accent as yours. I mean, the, we, we, I learned a lot, actually, about the, about the Swansea-Cardiff rivalry, which I didn't quite appreciate. Um, Milton Keynes from... From Joe. I don't think I've ever been, but I would like to go to Swansea at some point. Have you never been to Swansea? Oh, well, I'll definitely invite you to that. So Never. Worry. Yeah, please do. Please do. You definitely go. Oh, so were you in Cambridge at the time then when you kind of, you know, you got the phone call? Yeah. We need you here. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and it was, yeah, it was because we both had to take time off from the PhD, didn't we? I took three months. I think you took four months off. Yeah, yeah. I t- yeah, gosh. My God. It didn't even, it just went so quick. So I can't even, you know, just thinking back now, I think four months off, just, you know, put the PhD on hold and this put some work. Yeah. Yeah. Literally just, I mean, to the extent that I remember when I came back to the PhD, I had to re-familiarize myself. I couldn't remember anything I was doing. I couldn't remember how to, how to run a Western. I could barely remember how to ride a bike when I came back to Cambridge. I was, I was, I was like a whole different world to me. But it did make me really appreciate the PhD in general, like being able to go into the lab every day and you're your own boss. You decide what experiment you're going to do. You decide what question you're going to ask. You, you, it's all up to you. And as much as the people we worked with in Milton Keynes were all really, really nice, but you were doing the same thing every day because, you know, they need test results they need test results it was the same thing every single day but phd is really um it's nothing if not interesting yeah shall we say? Really definitely. That. Okay. so we'll go into the phd now and just kind of if you could just give the viewers or the listener sorry just a quick description on what you're studying i think i've already mentioned cambridge but yeah 
you want to just say? Yeah, so I work in a lab which is interested in um, a couple of things, but one of the primary things we're interested in is a protein called CHHD4. Now, CHHD4 is a protein that exists in the mitochondria. So you might remember it as the, the powerhouse of the cell. Um, uh, and what it does is the mitochondria is a double membraned organelle. So it's got an outer membrane, a space, and then an inner membrane. And that space, uh, it's called the intermembrane space, is where CHHD4 exists. And what it does is it is the central component of a pathway that imports proteins into that intermembrane space. So the proteins that function there in a variety of functions, they might be involved in protein import, they might be involved in respiration, but they are imported into the intermembrane space in a process regulated by CHHG4. So it's a, a very important protein for that. Um, now, what our lab has shown is that CHHG4 also plays a role in hypoxia biology, in regulating hypoxia biology signaling. Hypoxia being a condition of low oxygen. So oxygen in the atmosphere is about 21%. Um, and there's a physiological oxygen uh, tension in the body which is I think about 15, 16%. And then if it goes below that, it's termed hypoxia, low oxygen. Low oxygen is really important in cancer because the hypoxic parts of the tumor are the most difficult to treat. Um, radiotherapy is less effective and chemotherapy is also less effective in the hypoxic parts of the tumor. And what the lab has shown is that CHHG4, if you have increased CHHG4, in cancer patients, then the prognosis is worse and um, the cancer tends to be more aggressive in a variety of different cancers. Um, so what we're interested in is why is that the case, right? Because there doesn't seem to be intuitive. How is this protein that's in the intermembrane space of the mitochondria, why is it having an effect on the hypoxia and, and hypoxia signaling? Um, and I'm investigating that in a model organism, namely zebrafish. Zebrafish are interesting because they've actually had a, a genome duplication event about 100 million years ago, which means they have two genes for every gene that we have. So there's a CSH4A and a CSH4B in zebrafish. So yeah, I'm trying to investigate CSH4's function um, in hypoxia in zebrafish. Yeah, wow, that's really interesting. Talk, thinking about the hypoxia, in terms of you saying it's more difficult to treat it for the cancers. Can you just explain yeah. why that is, if that's okay? Yes, that's a good question. So in radiotherapy, the way radiotherapy works is you fire radiation um, as close or basically as precisely as you possibly can at the tumor because that radiation kills cells. It will kill healthy cells, it will kill cancer cells. And one of the ways it does that is by um, damaging DNA. Right. And in order to damage that DNA, what are called free radicals, um, reactive, oxygen, or reactive oxygen species. So basically for radiotherapy to work, you need oxygen there. So the less oxygen you have, the less effective that radiotherapy will be at killing cells. Now in terms of chemotherapy, chemotherapy being drugs like for example, metformin, 
those drugs in order to kill or cisplatin for example th those drugs in order to kill cancer cells they need to get to the cancer cells and how does stuff move around the body it moves around the blood so and the blood also carries oxygen so if a tumor is hypoxic that means that the blood isn't getting there and if the blood's not getting there then your chemotherapeutic can't get there either and in cancer you get this quite a lot where in tumors because the it, there's basically dysregulated signaling you get this kind of what's described as aberrant vasculature so the blood um, supply is usually very kind of uniform and but in tumors it's it's messed up it's really messed up and that means you get patches of the tumor where there's just no blood getting there because the vasculature is completely uh, mm. it's completely messed up so you get these hypoxic parts of the tumor developing and um and yeah they're they're, they're tough to treat like i say yeah i'm just wondering in terms of uh the hallmarks of cancer is the hypoxic part related to the angiogenesis yeah so that's a, so what joe's mentioned there's these hallmarks of cancer there's a really famous seminal paper mm, by Hanahan and Feinberg, I think their names are, where they describe originally, I think it was eight, and then they um, updated the paper to make it 10 hallmarks of cancer, like you say. So these are things like um, these are common characteristics you see um, in cancer. So there'll be things like uh, angiogenesis, which is the development of blood vessels, or um, altered metabolism, mm -hmm. uh, evading of cell death for yeah. example and hypoxia isn't one of them but hypoxia is something that has a relationship with all of them basically so hypoxia has been shown to increase um genome instability genome instability is a hallmark of cancer obviously hypoxia is very closely related to angiogenesis because in hypoxic regions of the body normally when a part of the body becomes hypoxic these factors are released that cause the growth of new blood vessels so and so obviously hypoxia is related to angiogenesis um so yeah it's it's very closely related to these hallmarks which are uh, very often found in in cancer and tumors wow that's really interesting because so, i remember before and going a bit off topic now but when we were speaking back in milton Keynes, i remember you mentioning hif which is um hypoxia inducible factor yeah yeah so how does how do they even measure you know if a cell if a tumor of a cell is hypoxic or not or the environment that it's in that's a really good question i mean you i have you take me back to my right. master lectures there I, I do remember there is there is actually for example a probe you can get so you can inject i don't know if inject is the right word but basically a probe that you can used to penetrate a tumor especially if the tumor is mm. like near the skin or something you know um and you can use that to probe oxygenation in the lab what we might do is you can so there's a stain called pimidizole um which stains hypoxia oh, wow. um and interestingly the lab a couple of years ago released this paper showing that increased chthd4 affected the localization of mitochondria so it made them more perinuclear that means closer to the nucleus 
and this could generate regions of intracellular um, hypoxia. So lo localized regions of hypoxia within the cell that could then have an effect on transcription uh, in the nucleus. Yeah. Let me um, and this transcription happens because, or is, is mediated by, as you say, a protein called HIF, which is hypoxia-inducible factor, which is like the conductor of the of the orchestra that is the hypoxic adaptation of the cell. It regulates all. Uh, it regulates the cellular adaptation to hypoxia mm. by causing loads of different genes to be activated, transactivated in hypoxia. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a very important gene, HIF, and it's um, very closely related or important in a number of different cancer settings. And, and, and it's HIF that CHHE4 has been shown to regulate. So in tumors with, excuse me, increased CHHE4, you see an increase in, in HIF, and we've shown that in in vitro as well. Um, if you, for example, overexpress over CHHE4 in a cell line, you'll see increased HIF activation in hypoxia and increased HIF target gene activation in hypoxia. Cool. Yeah, so for me personally, I've never actually performed any animal studies. It's either been, you know, my background's human studies and PhD has just been in all in vitro. So just cell kind of work. How have you found mm. actually working with the zebrafish and I guess what, what's been the, oh, I guess it's, it's the genes you mentioned then. Is that the advantage of using the zebrafish? In That's another, yeah, it's another good question. Um, there's a number of reasons to use the zebrafish. Um, primarily, it's the fact that they are an organism, they're an organism that is very well adapted to hypoxia. Yep. So using them in hypoxia research makes sense. They're also a very commonly used uh, organism in research. I think that, I think there's I read some statistics somewhere that they're the second most commonly utilized organism behind mice. Um, oh. Their hypoxia apparatus and machinery is very well conserved compared to humans. They have a HIF gene. They have um, other other proteins that are um, implicated in hypoxia signaling. They're conserved, very well conserved in zebrafish. Um, also, they're very genetically tractable, which means that you can alter um, the genetics of fish using techniques like CRISPR, for example, um, quite easily. And also very useful is that they, so a lot of the work I do in the zebrafishes and embryos, and they, are a very useful model in hypoxia research because embryos for the first five days are self-feeding. Right. So you don't need to feed them anything. You can literally put them in a hypoxia incubator as if they were cells, do a time course and then harvest them and, and collect protein, for example, and do a Western or yeah, analyze protein, analyze RNA. Um, so yeah, they're a really useful um, model. They're also transparent, the embryos as well. So they're really good to look at in the micro on the microscope. You can do loads of things. I mean, you can even measure their heartbeat, for example. Um, so yeah, they're a great uh, versatile organism. And I think your question about how is it different? Um, I suppose if you're looking to a PhD model organisms, they're a lot more kind of, from my experience, I don't know if hands-on is the word to use, but 
it's a very different like every week pretty much i'll have to go to the zebrafish room and set up a cross to generate my embryos um <laughs> the wow. postdoc always makes a joke about how i'm just there with like dim the lights and i'm playing kind of barry white on the radio to try and get them in the mood but yeah that's essentially my job i'm i'm kind of zebrafish pimp every monday in the room um every monday oh my gosh that's a lot every monday yeah it's a, <laughs> they're like machines honest to god it is sometimes i watch sometimes i don't you know it's, it, it, once you've seen one zebrafish mating it's you've seen them already um but yeah it's a lot more like it's a lot more <laughs> like i say hands i mean the other thing is i feel like they're less reliable than cells for example because you, you do experiments with cells yeah i mean the sense of like for example i'll set up the cross one week they might they just might not be in the mood and they won't lay any embryos and yep. it's like well those experiments that i had planned for that week i just can't do now mm. um the other thing about them is that they so some for some experiments like it might be important how old the embryos are so how many hours post-fertilization 48 hours 72 hours <clears throat> post-fertilization and they're growing older like no matter what so if i've got an experiment that has to be done for example at 24 hours hpf i have to be there at 24 hours hpf doesn't matter what i'm doing doesn't matter what i've got going on in my life it doesn't matter what like i have to be there and if for example you know let's say i've it could mean that it would be really really useful for my experiment if i was in the lab at 2 a.m right and there's just nothing i can do about that i either have to be in the lab at 2 a.m and, and do it or i have to say well i can't do it i'm gonna have to wait two weeks until i can do my next zebrafish cross because you meant to give them two weeks rest between each cross oh, okay um so yeah probably when i was looking for my phd i probably wouldn't have wanted to do an animal project uh, my project change which is why oh, i'm right. doing this current one which is very very common in phds um so but yeah it's been it's been a good experience. i'm glad that it's gone this route so yeah i'm happy happy with my fish well you've made that the perfect next question then why why did you change then what was the was there any reason uh not i mean it, it was more kind of circumstance to be honest my project was pretty loosely defined when i came to the lab um so it wasn't i wasn't necessarily very married to it but um it was just circumstance really like the the fish were we very recently generated these fish um a particular uh genotype basically um and it was kind of like a natural beginning for a project mm. so my supervisor asked me do you want to do this and it's like it's got a good foundation and there's a lot of experiments we got planned from the beginning and i was like yeah that's why not um i think that's definitely good advice for anyone that's thinking of doing a phd do not be married to the project that you apply for because it's very very common for it to change um i think a good sign actually for when you're looking for a phd is i kind of found this is that i found so many projects interesting and it's kind of a sign that you're you're into research in general as a concept which means that whatever happens when you're doing your PhD, you're kind of in a good position because like I said, the PhD is very prone to being changed. Mm -hmm. um, not even necessarily at the beginning, you know, so yeah, it's good to have a love of research in general, I think. Yeah, no, definitely. I think I've not really spoken to many people that have 
I guess, started with one project and not kind of ended up with another. You know, it doesn't mm. really change drastically where, I don't know, you kind of, you start off with a psychology and then next thing you know, you're working on cell culture or vice versa. Yeah. Not so much that, but it does, I think as you start reading the literature more, you start getting better at the techniques and you start following the data. I think it's just a natural kind of step really, isn't it? Because, you know, with research, you're trying to find something new out, I guess, really, you know, so if you don't know what's going to happen, then how can you predict what your end PhD is going to be? I don't know. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to be, you know, science is such a dynamic field. I remember my teacher in for biology at school used to say like he did his undergrad and then they'd say like, basically if you want to go into research, you have to go into research now, because if you don't, then the next year, the new undergrad will know more than you because science will have progressed and new stuff will have happened and that they, they're, they're being taught about. So yeah, it's a really, really rapidly moving field and you've yes. got to be adapted to that. Yeah. We even seen this earlier when we just off the recording, like even just, I'm going to bring it back just to the Milton Keynes, you know, just being able to adapt um, and just into a new set and then just get working in a lab straight away, isn't it? Which it was. Yeah. You know, yeah. That technique. But um it was it was different to what we were doing at PhD. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean it was yeah, like you said, you couldn't really have a bigger change, could you, than doing that? It's, especially because like you were working in this environment like where you're doing obviously there's no kind of getting around this, a tedious job. Right, you are doing the same because we're essentially, it's essentially a factory, isn't it? It's a factory that's, and the thing it's producing is test results. And you might work at different parts of the line, but ultimately, you know, you're going to be doing a very, very similar job every time. But that doesn't mean that you can switch off. No. Because every single test is very important, very, very, very important, which is why stuff like we said about having a witness when you're doing a procedure is really important because you need to make sure that you're not switching off and you're not becoming casual. Um, you know, because yeah, it's, yeah. I don't want to say life or death, but it is something close to that at least. No, it is. It's so important. And well, not that I met anyone that did get thrown off by it. When you have someone witnessing you, you it's, I think the first impression you could have had, which, I don't think anyone did, but potentially is that you're thinking, oh, people don't believe I have the capabilities to perpet this, but it's not about that, is it? You know, mm. to reduce the maximum amount of human error as we can. So if that means you've got someone watching you perpet, then it just is what it is. You know, it's it's not about us. But to be honest, I don't think anyone got like that. They kind of said that to us at first, didn't they? You know, don't think of it as like, oh, you know, we're trying to, watch everything you do it's just that it's so important isn't it and mm. i think I, yeah and to be honest that's a good i think that's something that academia and science teaches you is that you can't you can't take stuff personally you know there's all you're always going to have a conversation your your work is always going to be criticized in science something you just have to accept by people like your supervisor your colleagues or whatever and a lot of the time scientists they don't dress up their language you know they'll say oh i don't think 
you said you've reached this conclusion here. I don't. I don't think you have. I don't think. I think the evidence. I think the protocol is flawed. I think the evidence is like circumstantial. I don't think it's as. I don't think the work is as important as you're trying to make it out. Like imagine someone saying that to you. Like I don't. I don't think that the accounts that you did just now, Mr. Accountant, are actually very important at all. I think it's rubbish. I think. I think you should get rid of it. No one would say that to them. No one would say that to them. No one cares enough to be honest to say that to accountants. But, but you know what I mean. Like science. <laughs> Science is different. You you get that kind of language very very frequently. I think it's something that some undergrads actually struggle to adapt to when they they you know when you're doing a presentation, it feels like you're being attacked, mm. especially in a PhD interview as well. I don't know what yours were like, but mine you had like eight people, all much older than you, all much more experienced than you, all much more important than you, sitting in like a circle around you, just firing questions at you nonstop, and not with a smile not with a smile at all so um so yeah i think if and milton Keynes, you know uh, it was the same principle you can't you can't afford to be offended because someone thinks that your pipetting technique can be improved yeah right you can't it's just it's all about the end result which is getting a reliable test yeah and to be honest i don't think it really was like that i think i think because of what you just explained about research and you get you're used to people kind of questioning your work i think when we went to milton Keynes, there wasn't really that that effect didn't really happen did it but mm. i could i could see why it, it might have had an effect but yeah it was an incredible team yeah ethic and effort in Milton Keynes especially when you consider like I say you're just throwing these people not only into the same work environment but a lot of the time into the same home environment as well they're all living in this hotel together yeah. all commuting every day together all working for 12 I can't I, can't, I actually can't believe 12 hours of from 8 p.m to 8 a.m mm-hmm. three nights in a row yeah I, that I, I mean the people that are doing it now honestly respect them Mm-hmm. it's a herculean effort it really is and and yeah it was it was you can imagine an environment like that it's actually very surprising that people didn't get more tetchy and you know yeah. kind of annoyed than they did because yeah it was mm. uh, it was tough i think it comes back to what you're just saying as well because we, we had a group of people you know so dynamic and from different all over the country and you know we even had internationals um, who are studying a, a PhD or a master's or we're just living in the UK anyway, working. It was just so fascinating. And I think everyone just kind of motivated each other. And it was just, I think that's what got us through, wasn't it? Um, yeah. I remember after them three days, you kind of just had to just, that, that day off you had after, my gosh, you just, you could not do anything that day, could you? Well, I couldn't. Anyway. Yeah, no, you... <laughs> I remember you telling me sometimes you'd, you'd go back home, you'd drive. Did you ever drive after a shift back to Leicester? Oh, gosh, no. No, I don't no, really. I, I, I think... Sorry, go on. Yeah, no, sorry. I, was, I think there were some people that used to do that or they'd drive back to London after... I was just like, good Lord, I can't even... I can't even... We used to get in the bus afterwards. I need the driver to tell me when to go off. I, I, I'm just there. I'm just knocked out. I really... I, I get on the bed. I'm not sure if I'll ever wake up again. I was just that tired, <laughs> you know. So yeah, it was. Uh, I used to love going back to the holiday and just having that burger, uh, burger, <laughs> that, burger panini. That, that, that cheese panini. Oh my gosh! I've done one. I had so many of them. I can't believe how much I ate. And just uh, what else? 
Um, it was like a yeah, it was like a bacon sausage burger. Like wow. Yeah, man, I can remember. I can imagine you with your Italian heritage as well, seeing yep. that panini, being like, "Yeah, this is this is just like how they make it in the home country, right?" It was burnt to a crisp <laughs> every single time. Burnt to a crisp. My God, yeah. I like that all. Well, did you eat them? Yeah, I no. To be fair, I did eat them. To be fair, I did. Listen, when you've got no fridge, you take what you can get. I'm all right. I had so much food, especially night shifts. My gosh, just like, yeah, I can't believe how much I ate. I just I put a lot of weight on. Just yeah, and no, I put on the yeah, I put on weight as well. I was tough because yeah, I mean because the food was, the food was free, and you were also doing a really kind of labor-intensive job for twelve hours, and you know it's just and also like I guess because I wasn't cycling there at all, like it wasn't. It was very difficult to do any exercise because of lockdown. And plus, you were so tired when you got back anyway. Yeah, it was a tough... I, I, it made me think, you know what? Working night shifts is tough. It is. Uh, it's, it's really, really tough. These people, especially now, like doctors and nurses working in the NHS and doing nights, I mean, my utmost respect to them because to do that for a whole career... I mean, we did it for three months. Can you imagine yeah. doing that for a whole career? That's, oh, that's no, serious. That played to them. Okay, awesome. So we'll just go, let's revert it back back a bit, I guess. So where did you go to school and, you know, what made you want to go to university then? Yeah, so I went to school in Birmingham, grew up in Birmingham. Um, and from, I mean, my parents always emphasized to me the importance of working hard at school and, and doing well and um, science, really. My mum's a doctor, my dad's an engineer. Both of them have absolutely no respect for each other's professions. None whatsoever. My mum thinks engineering is boring, which it is. And my dad thinks medicine is just like learning things from a book. Um, so what I did was I disappointed both of them and I kind of went in the middle <laughs> and did academia, but not biomedical science, but not actually becoming a doctor because I'm far too squeamish. Um, yeah, I was really into biology and chemistry. Those are my two favorite subjects, really. And particularly, I really liked stuff. I really liked essentially what biochemistry is, which is the interface between chemistry and how chemical principles work and how that impacts biology, specifically human physiology. So the example that I gave back in my personal statement and my, I don't even know how much money I'd pay to read your personal statement because they're always the funniest things <laughs> are they everyone sounds like such a dick <laughs> in their personal statement but um which for me was absolutely no problem whatsoever but but I remember in mind what I spoke about the most was like I don't know if you remember did you do biology uh science geez. undergrad and then science undergrad yeah Master. so uh, I just remember we we um we talk about the 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 cell membrane in the cell okay. it's called the phospholipid bilayer and um it's kind of got this the the center part is made up of these it's kind of like a hydrocarbon uh, what's it called it's a hydrocarbon chain basically mm -hmm. carbons and hydrogens carbon and hydrogens and they're very hydrophobic and it's got a hydrophilic um, these heads yeah yeah exactly um and i was just really intrigued about how 
that worked and then how it made the membrane semi-permeable and how you had, for example, what are called unsaturated fats, which are the healthy fats. Um, what that means is that the, some of the carbons in their hydrocarbon chain, they don't have the maximum number of bonds. So it creates a little kink in the chain, which keeps the membrane fluid and stops it from solidifying. And stuff like that, I always found, uh, always kind of maybe really interested. So, um, so yeah, studied biochemistry um, for my undergrad and then, uh, yeah, so yeah. I was, sorry, I should mention, so you done undergrad at Imperial, didn't you? Yeah. And then right. masters at Oxford and now PhD at Cambridge. What's yeah. it been like, you know, studying at the top, well, top three universities in the UK? We'll start off with Imperial. Um, so Imperial, I really liked Imperial. I really liked Imperial, like, as a university, but I hated the institution. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, the, it's got a very low student satisfaction rate, relatively speaking, especially the biochemistry department. Yeah, it's terrible. It's really terrible. Um, they don't have a lot of respect for the students or even the staff, to be honest, from my, from my memory of working there. But I really liked just university life. I loved being in London. I loved the, um, the science, really. I loved the, the people. It was a very unique place because Imperial's only sciences. There's no art students. And the other thing about oh. it is that it's more than 50% of the students there are international. So if you're like English and you've lived here your whole life, you're actually in the minority of people wow. there, which is amazing because you just you're always kind of in contact with people from completely different backgrounds completely different cultures and yeah it's amazing and, and you've all got to some degree a similar interest because you're all scientists or engineers or doctors so it was a great time it was a great time but after three years i was very ready to leave yeah um and it's interesting, actually, this, I mean, when I get like introduced to people like at a party or something, just, just me, anyone, and there's a mutual friend there, they always used to introduce me as, oh, this is Hassan, he does comedy, he's a comedian. Hey. But ever since I came to Cambridge, it's now been replaced by, this is Hassan, he went to Imperial Oxford in Cambridge. It's like, that's, that's now the most interesting thing <laughs> about me, which I don't know how much, I, maybe that says a lot about the quality of my jokes rather than anything, but um but yeah it's uh oxford was um for my masters i did radiation biology um okay. which we kind of mentioned earlier and uh and yeah in cambridge i did my phd which we discussed when you um, were at imperial then was it kind of were you thinking okay i'm gonna finish this degree now and then you know, I'm going to do a master's and PhD. When do you actually realize you wanted to do a PhD? It's a really good question. And to be honest, I remember going into my undergrad thinking, if there's one thing I know for sure is that I don't want to do a PhD. Because <laughs> I'd seen my dad's, my dad has a PhD in his engineering stuff. And I'd seen his thesis, just even the, the thesis was so, it's like this, you know, they can't see this, but it's like an inch and a half, two inches thick. Wow. Yeah. I'm like, who has got the time to read that? Never mind, write this. <laughs> so I just thought, I, don't, I want no part of this whatsoever. And then it got to third year and I was like, I have no idea what I want to do, but I am enjoying what I'm doing at the moment. Mm. So I thought let's apply for a, a master's. Um, but I was still like, I don't want to do a PhD. That's obviously out of the question. 
and uh, and then at the beginning of the masters i was like well i still can't really think of anything else i prefer to do and i know that i'm enjoying what i'm doing at the moment so why not because i think the other thing is that like when you do an, an undergrad in a science subject mm. there were people that i knew at imperial who day one day one they'd be like hi my name is sam my name is Rick, my name is you know jenny or whatever and i want to do banking I was like, what is the point of you being here? Like you could have you could have studied anything, but you decided to do biochemistry at Imperial. There's probably someone out there, well, there's definitely people out there that didn't do as well as you, maybe didn't go to as good a school, um, but love science. They absolutely love science. They could have taken your place and you could have studied whatever else, like anything else basically, and still gone into finance. So I always felt that like if you do an undergrad, you know, in a science subject, especially me, because like, you know, I went to a very, very good school and I had a lot of privilege in my education to to then do my undergrad and then go what go straight into finance and just make racks basically. Like, come on, that's not I that never that never occurred to me as like being a good thing to do. So I thought, okay, if I do a PhD, that's at even if I leave academia afterwards, at least I can say I've worked in research for three or four years. Yeah. And I've done something. So that was a big thing as well, I think. Um, and yeah, and, and I was kind of lucky as well because unfortunately the system in this country is you've got to apply very early, as you know. So like I was sending in my applications, I was researching applications in October. I've just arrived at Oxford. I was already looking at applications for PhDs. And then I got my place in February. I hadn't even been in the lab because my, mm. my, it was six months of lectures and six months of labs on the masters. I haven't even been in the lab and suddenly I've signed up to do four years of PhD. But luckily I really enjoyed the time in the lab and I thought, okay, thank God I have made the right decision. And yeah, so it all worked out. Yeah, it is crazy. And we've both done the same thing in terms of both studied a degree, a master's and a PhD, all in different universities. So I don't know what, how you felt, felt about it, but you kind of, I, I definitely enjoyed switching universities. You know, I like being in one for this certain amount of time, moving on, moving on. But do you, did you ever feel a disadvantage starting a new, new university completely again? Especially a master's. Master's is like, what, one year, we can do a part-time two years. Mm. I just felt because I went to Loughborough and I thought you know by the time I got there you're like needing out the door in the next couple of months yeah how you felt about that I, I completely agree with you I completely agree with you I really think I get and I also there's quite a few of my friends now that are in their final year of undergrad who I've had this conversation with where I say like if you can leave and do your master somewhere else definitely definitely do it because one I think people sometimes think like, oh, I could do one more year where I am, but it's never the same. And you get to like a few months in and you're like, I've done everything. I've done everything at Loughborough. I've done everything at Imperial. There's nothing new for me here. All my friends have left. I could have gone to a new place and made new friends and met new people and had a new experience and also had somewhere, something else to put on my CV, right? Because if you have, a, I feel like if you have a master's from the same uni as your undergrad, it kind of fuses into one. But like if you have a master's from somewhere else, it shows first of all that you're comfortable like entering a new environment new surroundings or whatever and two it's just i don't know it feels like it kind of adds to your cv you've got two places now that you're associated with rather than just one um so yeah i would always 
but as you say as well you're you know you're out the door almost as soon as you come in with a yeah. with a 12 months masters very quick you just can't you really have to make the most of your time there which is um i think good ex good advice for university experience in general yeah definitely masters you know you just i can't believe how quick it goes but i think obviously for degree and phd you definitely get settled in to the area don't you um, yeah well absolutely exactly as a phd i mean you're there you're there for the long haul you really are i think this is actually you know i think i'll actually start asking everyone who comes on the podcast now i'll just ask them did you study you know in the same university or change and it'd just be interesting to see both sides for me personally mm. i completely agree with you i like it's just nice to see a change on the cv i think and there's so much difference between universities whether you're studying the same thing or slightly different there's there's a different goal isn't it absolutely i couldn't agree more i mean i was gonna say loughborough i mean loughborough is really one of a kind right it's got yeah. like the sporting elite but also in an academic institution i was gonna ask you like what what is that like are there people there who are very much they're there for sporting reasons and the degree is almost like a side thing like i I'd, like talk to me about that hey, hang on this podcast is about you it's not <laughs> no i'm just i'm just interested <laughs> yeah it is a pretty surreal experience being at loughborough you know you hear about it there's even like statistics where I think if it was a country in the Olympics or something, it would have come like 16th. Or, really? You know, it would come Jeez in front of other countries Christ. like New Zealand. And you just think, my gosh, just the sporting community there is just absolutely crazy. And I don't know, have you been to Loughborough at all? The no, I haven't. I haven't. Well, it's just one big campus, right? And it's massive. Like, you, you can get there's buses taking you from one side of the campus to the other. Uh, but the most common thing is probably running because everyone just runs. It's very common to, you'll have one lecture, one side of the campus, and then it's half a mile the other side. And then you just pe see people running, doing their training. Um, you know, you see people, you know, rugby training. And yeah, it's just crazy. The environment there, it's, yeah, I guess very sports specific. It's pretty crazy, to be honest with you. Um, wow. Everyone's proper fit. So yeah, it's definitely interesting being there. Yeah, I mean, no wonder they tend to wreck Cambridge at the football then. Uh, if they were <laughs> running between lectures, they're definitely not doing that here, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, everyone cycles in. That's, what, that's one thing I noticed when I went to Cambridge and Oxford. I've been to both now, and my God, everyone just cycles everywhere, don't they? Everyone's... Yeah. So common, is that just... Yeah, I don't really see many cars. Why is that? I think, I mean, definitely in Cambridge, like, it's the, the city layout is just very, very designed for cycling. You know, it's actually quite difficult to drive around Cambridge, um, Oxford as well, really. Um, but it is, yeah, I mean, it's good. Like I said, I think I definitely missed it when I was at Milton Keynes. Cycling it does keep you, does keep you fit. And it's small enough that cycling is the, and it's also, to be fair, during the pandemic, because it's technically like a private mode of transport, it's it's much safer. And it's good for the quads. I mean, you know, from Milton Keynes, God, I was, I was bursting out my jeans, wasn't I? It was, it was really quite something to behold. Yeah, the, it's Absolutely. I was, they called me the Iraqi Bradley Wiggins, I think, if I remember correctly, Milton Keynes. <laughs> Outstanding. So, and I know you probably get this question so many times, but it's just got to be asked, isn't it? Mm. Now, which one's better? Oxford or Cambridge? Oh, sorry. Huh? I, you thought you were gonna ask, I thought you were going to ask how I got my quads. No, yeah, Oxford and Cambridge, I get, I get that a lot. I'm going to quads after. We move off camp for But, uh, yeah, <laughs> on, Ox, Oxford, Cambridge. 
Yeah, for me, I mean, I think it's definitely a matter of um, perspective if anyone's thinking of, you know, because I, I know for undergrad, you can only apply to one. But for postgrad, you can apply to both if you want, uh, which is what I did, certainly for PhD. Right. Um, they're both they're obviously very similar. And I think they're like, they're much more similar to each other than they are to any other university. I mean, Imperial was completely different. Imperial, obviously, middle of London. Like I said, most people are international, um, or only sciences. Mm. Cambridge and Oxford, like, they're, you know, most people are from the UK. Truthfully, most people sound, speak the same. They, they are from, a lot of people are from North London private schools and that's takes some getting used to but i mean there's obviously diversity to some extent right but it just it feels like areas of university society are dominated by that kind of people right like for example you know whatever right um especially because you, i think you've got a lot of people for whom going to oxbridge is like a generational thing Right. Like their dad went to this, oh, I'm, I chose this college because my dad went here and my granddad went to the rival college. We have banter about that. And it's like, my God, like, it's just so different to, you know, the average person. Well, yeah. um, between the two of them, the big difference is I always found that I really, I mean, I definitely much prefer Cambridge. I'm really glad I came here. Mm -hmm. Big, big reason behind that is because I do comedy and a lot of, I mean, Cambridge is the most famous comedy university site in the world, which is the Footlights. Wow. So many really famous people come from there, like Hugh Laurie, Stephen Fry, um, Monty Python, John Cleese, Robert Webb, uh, David Mitchell, John Oliver, Richard Ayoade, Sue Perkins, um, Ol uh, Olivia Coleman. So lots of uh, David Mitchell. very, very famous people. I don't know our name. Yeah. Peep show. David Mitchell is from yeah Peep Show. What? Yeah, Mitchell and Webb look as well. Yeah. No. Yeah. 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 So it's 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 it's. I mean, it's a reason that it's not like I'm unique in this. There's a lot of people that go to Cambridge because of the footlights. I remember when I was 15 years old, like watching an episode of Mastermind. That's how cool a kid I was. Is how I spent my spare time watching Mastermind and um, seeing an episode with with Robert Webb. And the host, John Humphrey, said to him, what, what advice would you give to someone who wants to become a comedian? And he went on this long story about footlights. And at the end, John Humphrey said, so your advice would be go to Cambridge. And he was like, yeah, I'd say go to Cambridge. And I was, I was like, yes, OK, I, have, I really want to go to Cambridge. Then. Yeah. So that was a big thing. I think Cambridge is a bit more diverse, despite everything I just said, both racially and in terms of like people's socioeconomic background. I think it's a bit more diverse. Um, wow. But but truthfully i think that you know there's they're they're quite similar and they're incredible places they're incredible places to visit i'd highly recommend if you've never been to cambridge or oxford especially now like the pandemic where people aren't traveling internationally as much if you want to visit a really beautiful city both of them are uh well they are stunning but been to both now um i'm just wow yeah yeah and yeah, they're really nice so we'll just go into the comms you know because that's obviously something you do Mm. When did that start? Was that an Imperial or has that only been since Cambridge? Yeah, so the, so Imperial, we did have a comedy society, but it was so difficult because it was just a struggle to get a gig. It was a real struggle to get 20 people in a room 
to listen to comedy. There was no infrastructure, there was no tradition, there was nothing. So it was really, really hard. And the way you get better at comedy is practice. Right. It's performing loads and loads and loads and learn, you learn from experience. And if you're only performing once a month, it's very difficult. And, that, and that's why so many comedians have come from Cambridge. It's not necessarily because they're so much more naturally talented. It's just because they've had so many opportunities to fail that by the end of doing a three-year course, they've got so much more experience at the age of 21 than anyone else does. Um, it was the same at Oxford. I mean, Oxford, there was a bit, there's a bit more, there's an improvisational comedy group called the Imps. But I was never really that into improv and they have a group called the Review. My God, I mean, honestly, some of the worst, some of the worst comedy I've ever seen in my life was performed by by the Oxford, the Oxford Review. I remember actually the last year I was there, they they performed every year in this 250-seat venue, sold out. Every year it'd be sold out. And um, quite recently they got downgraded. They just got kicked out of there. They got sent to a much smaller venue because it was just inexcusable anymore. I think people were getting sick of it. Like, But I think also part of that is because Oxford Review, again, performed much less. Whereas at the Footlights, the footlights, the thing about us is we're terrible, but we're terrible every week. Do you know what I mean? So we get better. <laughs> Whereas Oxford Review are terrible three times a year. So the progression is 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 worse. Um, but yeah, so I started very much like you say at Imperial. In fact, I knew like going into university, I wanted to do stand-up. Like this was my chance to do stand-up. Because I used to watch like Hammersmith Apollo, Live at the Apollo. I just think to myself, this is not that funny. Like <laughs> The audience are dying of laughter. There's there's people, you know, bending over back. They they can't believe how funny this is. I'm like I'm barely cracked a smile at some of these jokes. How can I not do better than this? Of course, with experience, you come to realize that who gets on live at the Apollo is very much who you know. Is it? It's not as yeah. It's not as merit. I mean, that was the other thing that I loved about comedy is that I thought it was very meritocratic. No one goes to see a comedian because they're really good looking, you know. They go to see a comedian because they're very funny. So I was like, okay, I've got a chance. <laughs> yes, I have a chance. You know, Michael McIntyre, no one's, no one's there for his six pack, right? They're there to hear his jokes. Yeah. Um, but of course, you know, like a lot of industries, there's still a lot of nepotism. But I do feel like it's one of the most meritocratic creative industries out there still. That's probably a very naive attitude to have. But, I do, but you know, compared to like acting, for example. <laughs> I mean, acting, I... So I knew someone who, um, sorry, this is a bit of a tangential story. No, no. I, I, knew some, I, I knew someone who was an actress and I directed her in a play right at Oxford. And I remember her, t she told me loads, she'd been in two films for film four. And which is, which is crazy. I mean, that, that's at the our age, we were like 22 at the time. I was like, that's amazing. They had an agent, you know, whatever. I was like, I can't wait to direct this person. This is going to be like, this is incredible. Like, he's the best tools as a director you could possibly want. Absolutely crap. I, honestly, I was open mouthed. At how, do you know when, like, acting is like, I was just like, I don't understand how you can read these lines of a script and and not imagine how they would. There's, there's like this, there's this comedy series called Extras written, directed by Ricky Gervais. And there's a scene where he's like directing an actor mm -hmm. and the actor walks in and he says, I just went to my mom's funeral today. And Ricky Gervais, the director says, no, 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 you, you have to be sad because you're, it's your mom's funeral. 
that's honestly the the level it was when I was directing this person, and I was just like, how have they, how have they reached this level of acting? And you know what it was? I remember one day, they said to me, do you know what, Hassan? I'm really worried. I'm not good. I'm not that good an actor. And I was like, oh come on, no. You know, you have to be polite. I was like, no, come on. You. I was like, listen, if you weren't a very good actor, how would you have been in these films? And they said to me, Hassan. I remember I walked into this audition, right? Um, it was a callback for the for the film. There were twenty um, young, short actresses with the same colour hair as me. We all looked very similar. And and at the audition, there was a picture of the of the character of the person that they were that they were you know auditioning for the part they're auditioning for and of the 20 people i looked the most similar to that person and i knew i'd got the part even without doing a single bit of acting and i was just there like thinking that explains a lot that explains a lot because i know for a fact you did not get in there based on your meryl streep-esque performance and, and, and that's just how acting goes it's all about you know, it's all about looks. A lot of it is about looks. How the hell did Cara Delevingne get a part in Suicide Squad, man? Come on, the acting is terrible. Mm -hmm. um, but you can't do that in comedy, which is why I'm always very attracted yeah. to it as, a, as an industry. I've always wondered, so how scripted is comedy then? Because surely you have to practice the jokes, no? Or do you... Well, it's a good question, yeah. yeah. I mean, the best stand-up, and you will see, and this is especially evident on stuff like Love of the Apollo, will appear like it's someone just talking on the spot they're just having a conversation with you they're just saying what's coming to their head and it just happens to be extremely funny whereas in reality it has been extremely rehearsed practiced tested edited down to the finest word down to the delivery of specific syllables it has been absolutely perfected um you know, this comedian will have come up with an idea, they'll have written the joke, they'll have performed the joke, edited it, changed the delivery, performed it again, edited it, changed the delivery, performed it again, and then when they perform that joke maybe 10 times on the circuit and they've gauged the reaction each time, they've been like, okay, this is good enough for my Netflix special. Mm -hmm. And they'll put in an extra special. And in the next special, every single joke will bang. Um, and that takes serious work serious serious work to do i remember i saw a frankie boyle work in progress and i remember thinking every joke is banged every joke has been great the whole hour how can this possibly be a work in progress yeah. a year later he releases a stand-up special on the bbc and literally 50 percent of the jokes were in that work in progress from 12 months ago and wow. and that shows you that's how hard it is to write a joke of the caliber of Frankie Ball that makes it to TV. Like this guy has been working that material a long, long time. He's been putting a lot of hard work into it. But of course, when you watch it, it seems like he's just, you know, it's just come into his head just then. Yeah, I don't know if it sounds stupid, but when you're watching comedy, yeah, you, you just think, oh, he's just naturally a funny guy and he knows how to, you know, look at like mm. Mop the Week. Like, surely that's not rehearsed with the questions and stuff. But it absolutely is. Do you know what? This is the thing about Mock the Week. It's so, they are given like the question, you know, for example, the bits where they like, they rotate that wheel and there's a topic for yeah. stand up. And then someone comes up, boss, they know that two weeks in advance and they write some stand up for it. And not just they, they have a team 
each person will have people that can contribute right so for example i might be working on well not me but <laughs> someone might be working on say um andy parsons bit mm -hmm. so andy parsons start stand up bit for that particular section of the show might have four writers who've, who've done who've been writing for that four people that get credits for that um but i think it's interesting that comedy has a lot of similar principles with comedy and in fact useful principles that apply in whatever career you take on afterwards like the, the scientific method is such a useful framework to approach any problem or challenge with because what i was saying about how for example you write a joke you perform the joke let's say the joke gets a good reaction is that joke going to get a good reaction every time you perform it if it was a scientific experiment and you were keeping all the variables the same every time the audience was the same the venue was the same your performance was the same your delivery was the same etc yes you'd expect it to be funny every time but that's not the case no. you'll be performing in different venues you'll be performing to different target audiences you might deliver the joke differently your preceding joke and the following joke might be different etc 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 so as a comedian you've got to try and work out why is this joke funny will this joke work on a certain audience and what is the evidence that i've got that it will work on that audience you know for for me for example i'm like a young i was born to two iraqi parents i'm a muslim etc etc something i worked out very quickly when i'm performing to a cambridge audience i can do a nine out of ten joke a really really good joke about iraqi culture and a cambridge audience will laugh at it they will they will laugh at it I can do a six out of 10, even a five out of 10 joke about ABBA, about going to private school, about being rich. They will love it. They will absolutely, there will be, I remember I got a gig, like a paid gig off the back of one ABBA joke that I did at a live set, which is like very, like I wouldn't usually do jokes about ABBA, even though I do love them. And it just it taught me the lesson of you have to write to your target audience. You, right. It doesn't matter what you can write an amazing joke, but if your target audience is in a position to get it, it's useless. And it's the same. It's a weirdly, it's a similar principle in science. As scientists, we have to make our work accessible, right? It's no point doing your research, whatever, and only being able to explain it like to 10 people that are world experts in the field. Mm -hmm. You've got to, as a scientist, be able to talk to someone that has no knowledge of science whatsoever and be able to explain what you do in your research in a way that they can understand it and that it's still true to its yeah. principles, right? So I think it's a great idea. As a PhD student, you've got to have other stuff, other interests that you pursue and it keeps you kind of balanced and focused. And, and it means that if something goes really badly wrong in the PhD, that's not your whole life. You know, you've got other ways to keep you grounded or or whatever. So I, I think it's really good advice for PhD students in general to tell us something like that. Yeah, no, it's interesting you you say that actually because I had a PhD student on last week who was from UCL and she was mentioning you know, when she was kind of in second year PhD, she felt like she wanted to quit at one point just because she was struggling to kind of motivate herself uh, and she felt like her work wasn't really that practical because obviously she was doing mm. cell culture kind of work. And then she started doing some charity work and stuff and some women empowerment. And my gosh, she just said like, it just, it just gave her this new kind of motivation to just get back into the PhD. And I think I completely agree. It's so important because 
a PhD, there is a lot of failures, isn't in it, isn't it? And then absolutely you kind of overcome that to then think, do you know what? I've just got to carry on. And I'm I'm glad you said about the comedy. Oh, sorry, there's cats fighting outside. When you're rehearsing for your comedy, you know, like you said, there's so many. You go you you go through the failures of not making people laugh. Um, it's exactly yeah. the same as the PhD. Like you think how many experiments that didn't work, or you know, you didn't find what you wanted to find, and it's just part of the process, isn't it? You kind of got to go through them failures to actually, I guess, make it really surely. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, PhD, as you say failure is just such a recurring theme that you have to in fact i actually had a supervisor at one point who said to me that she preferred not to have oxbridge undergrads as phd students because her thinking was that they're so used to like academic success like getting 90% in exams and doing really, really well and being top of their class or whatever, that they come to a PhD and suddenly nothing works. Nothing works. They're learning a new experiment technique every day and it's going wrong every single time and they're wasting money. Well, not wasting money, but you know I mean? Their, their failures yeah. are costing money. That's weighing on your brain as well. And you're thinking, my God, how am I going to do four years of this? All I do is failure, failure, failure. They're not, you know, sometimes they're not mentally able to, to cope with that. And I remember one of my PhD interviews, someone said to me, um, what's like, give an example of a big failure you've had and how did you deal with it? It's a really good question to ask people because <clears throat> it's going to happen. It's going to happen a lot. And like you said, you, there's going to be times where you really think, what am I doing? Uh, why am I here in the lab at 11 p.m. doing this experiment? I know it's going to fail. Like you, you have to be in that psyche where you're willing to do an experiment. You've been doing this experiment 20 times. It's failed every single time. And you're still trying to think, okay, how can I get it to work in the 21st? You know, because, because over four years, that's going to happen. You need that mental fortitude and resilience to, to get you through really. Yeah. So interesting. You, you say about uh, failures, you know, it's, it's interesting now they both related to the kind of comedy and the research. And even like you were saying, you know, failing an experiment 20 times and you're always thinking, oh, how do I get that next one, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Like, I think like it, it's interesting how you can deal with that. I mean, something I learned is that if something's going really badly wrong, an experiment's going really badly wrong and you just don't know why and it keeps happening, sometimes it could just take a break, do something else do something else that works really well and regularly and you've know you've optimized it just to get your confidence back up because you know it's it's when when your morale goes down as a scientist everything becomes a chore and everything but you just lose motivation but when stuff's working really well and you're enthused and you want to find out the answer to a question it's not it, it doesn't even feel like work you know, it doesn't feel like work. You just want to find out the answer. It's just like the experiment that you're doing, the hours that you're putting in, it's just the path to finding out the answer that you want, which no one else knows. You know, that's always been the most appealing thing, I think, for, uh, of science for the people that do science, is that no one knows what you're finding out. No one's ever seen it before. No one's ever done it before. And hopefully one day you're going to publish it and the world will 
know slightly more about your area of interest because of because of your work because uh, i mean let's face it no one does it for the money do they just so no, so that feeling of of discovery is paramount it's absolutely key yeah it is crazy when you think about it phd you pick a specific area that you're interested in and you're trying to find something out in that area that's not quite known yet or hasn't been found like mm. that's what a phd is isn't it yeah exactly and 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 that's why you've you've really got to love what you do because and it's the same thing with undergrad to be honest the same thing with a mass same thing with whatever like if you're going to spend that much time doing it you've you've got to love it because because even if you love it it's going to be really hard mm-hmm. so if you don't love it you know it's I, I remember meeting people in first year at imperial like who three four months in would be like i really have picked the wrong course or like i really i'm just not bothered or not interested in what i'm learning and i was i i really don't know how you kept doing that because i knew i'd wanted to do biochem for a while and i loved studying it and i was finding it tough so to not even have that it's why it's why you've got to really be really well researched and and know what you're signing up for especially with a phd yeah i think the main thing i want to do with this podcast is is to not i definitely don't want to scare people away and I always want to try and show how, you know, how fun it is doing a PhD. But what I want to make sure as well is that I try and make it as realistic as possible so people understand what they're getting into. Or that's, I think that's the most important thing that I'm trying to Absolutely. do with my podcast. Not so much. It's not scaring off by any means. It's just being realistic, talking between ourselves and just being realistic about what it actually is. And Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the number of PIs that have told me that the PhD was the best time of their life as well. Like it's, you know, it's, it's also like as an academic, I think, I feel like it's the period of the most security you'll ever have in your academic career. Yeah. Because to get a four year grant is like almost unheard of. Like your grants are typically for months or, or like a year or maybe two years max. But for a PhD, someone has invested like a lot of money into you. They said for four years, we're going to back you no matter what happens. And that's, you know, that's, that's, that's gold dust really. That's, that's, that's something so appealing. If you're really interested in what you do and you're willing to work hard, then that's just, you can't get better than that. Yeah, it's interesting you actually mentioned, though, um, was it one of the PIs you were saying that were saying about they don't normally like picking Oxbridge students for PhDs? Cause yeah. You, wow. Have you, have you noticed that yourself in terms of, you know, not saying any names or anything, but Oxbridge graduates starting a PhD and they, they've just been hit by this completely new thing. I noticed it in undergrad, you know. I remember like people coming in being like, Oh, I got, you know, straight days at A level kind of thing. They were quite confident. But then even just at a degree just struggled just because it was more independent learning and stuff. But I'm one year into my PhD now and I I can't believe how different it is to like a taught course, like a like a degree, like a master's. It's it's like starting undergrad all over again. If that's yeah, how you spot on. Yeah. It's completely different, like you say. It's a completely different challenge. This is exactly what I mean about saying, like, I feel like in undergrad and in, like, this kind of exam, like, talk course mm. idea, the more work you put in, the more you'll get out. 
Like if you spend eight hours a day revising, you're going to do well. That's just how it is. You are definitely going to do well. You can spend eight hours a day in the lab and achieve nothing. Uh, and if you've not thought about why you're doing a particular experiment or you've not really understood like the problem you're facing or whatever, or you've not, sometimes you've done a, you start a new protocol without really reading the pro the background and like what you should be doing, what you shouldn't be doing. Mm. You can easily be wasting time and time and time. You, you know, there's, there's times in the lab where I thought, God, if I just read this one paper, if I'd just been intelligent enough to read this one paper about what I'm doing, I could have saved myself days of work. You know, for example, you might say, you might spend like ages trying to find out one particular thing. Quick browse on PubMed, turns out there's already been a paper published explaining exactly how to do it and the results they found. You know, so so it's it's a different ball game. Like you say, mm. it's a completely different um, approach and it's, and it's why you can like, yeah, like in terms of the, Oxbridge people doing truthfully I don't actually know yeah my lab's very small none of us um none of us were uh, Oxbridge for undergrad um all oh, right and I don't I, I don't know that I mean there's definitely people walking around that they they clearly um stuck around for under I, I do feel to be fair like once you've done four years you want to leave yeah you know you want to go somewhere else like, especially for a PhD so maybe that, that's another reason why it's less common but yeah, it's always a question. Ultimately, it's always a question of of attitude, right? And that, that's the other thing is that like, I feel like with academia and with grades and exams, you put someone that's had a great private education, you know, they've gone to school where it costs 10,000, 20,000 pounds a year to be there. They've had the best teachers, the best facilities, whatever. They're going to do better. It's very, very hard for them, you know, to, to not do as well if not better than someone that hasn't had that but you put them on a phd level it's suddenly like a much more level playing field right and that's and and it can separate people that you know it's testing different things it's testing different things it's not it's not testing how well you can remember which specific protein or which specific factor does what in an exam because you can just look that up you just look that up. It's not a big deal whether you remember it in the exam or not. It's testing. It's really testing thinking, like critical scientific thinking, thinking what is the next experiment I want to do? Why do I want to do it? What is the result I'm looking to try and show? Is this experiment giving me enough evidence to support this hypothesis? You know, what direction should I go in rather than can you remember um, how many genes have HIF transactivates? You know, so yeah, it's it's uh, it's a different challenge for sure. Yeah, it is. I can't believe ResearchGate has just been my best friend the last couple of weeks. My gosh, I've had so many questions mm. to ask, and it's so interesting going online and just seeing what other people have done. Sorry, excuse me. And like you said, you got PubMed as well, where you find a paper that saves your life. You're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe someone's already done this and then you can you know use that protocol because it's been validated um it's interesting it uh, how it's a different task or different challenge to a taught master's or degree and and this isn't to kind of you know show off by any means but like you know i got like a first degree i know yourself as well has 
and it just doesn't even matter. I feel like, mm. you know, like you were saying about the grades earlier, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking like, and you were talking about like, you know, if you go to private school and stuff, um, you're going to do better for in exams and you know, the more you study, the more you're going to get out of it. Yeah. Um, but I feel like, yeah, like you said, a PhD, it just does not matter, does it? And I even think, you know, it doesn't matter if you've got the highest grade in the university or whatever, like as soon as it gets to research, it's just different ball game again, isn't it? And it absolutely. does not matter. Yeah, absolutely. Which I think should should encourage people, if anything, right? That's yeah. it's that it's like that. It's it's interesting, like you even when you're doing labs in the undergrad degree, it's so different to how it is. Because yeah, you know, labs like an undergrad are so supervised and everything is like we know exactly what to expect and whatever and in a PhD you're in a lab and it's like you do you and you you know you design the protocol yeah yeah precisely I mean if, for example in my lab I'm the only person that works on the zebra fish all right if I'm doing a new protocol I've got to find out myself like you say ResearchGate PubMed whatever or finding people who I don't know and emailing them and asking like, yo, look, I'm trying to do this protocol. Could you help me? I don't know what concentration drug to use, or I don't know uh, how to operate this machine. Can you teach me or whatever? It's a different, it's a different skill set. And I feel like you, especially in the PhD and science in general, it's such a collaborative enterprise. The more you talk to people and the more you, you realize it's so much better to learn from someone else then make the mistake yourself and learn it that way from experience, mm. right? Um, it, it's, yeah, collaboration is such a vital component of science. And it's the reason why one of the most important things when you're looking to pick a PhD is the lab that you're working in. Yeah. Because you're going to be working with those people for so long. If you don't get on with them, you know, it's a recipe for disaster. And, vice versa like if you get on with them really well and they're helpful and it's an absolute dream yeah i completely agree it's not that's why people say you're picking the project you're picking the supervisor really aren't you and i'd like to think even when i met my supervisor for the yeah. first for the first time during the interview we just clicked really well and i kind of knew from there i've probably got the phd not not in a confident way of, oh, I'm better than everyone else. By far, mm. I don't mean that. But just because I felt like we clicked really well. We both had the same kind of ideas of what we both wanted to get out of a PhD, you know, in terms of her supervising and me doing it. So, yeah, I think that's important, isn't it? It's, it's about finding the right supervisor, finding that research area and making sure that that lab, that you're going to fit in well and be able to work in. Absolutely agree. Yeah, absolutely agree. But um, yeah, no, thanks for that. I really appreciate that. So, just kind of finishing off now, I'm just wondering if you can give some of your recommendations for how to get through a PhD. Then, really, because you spoke about the failure and stuff. You know, how do you do? You think it was the comedy that kind of helped you develop this? mindset of resilience where you just you know you got to keep going or you know what was it that helped you get through them times where you were failing it's a great question i think the support of your lab and your supervisor really helps 
you know, they've, cause they've been through it, right. They've, they've got their PhDs where they know exactly what you're going through. So that support really helps the support of others. Um, I mean, there's a really good example of this, this, there's this one protocol I was doing called CASP, which is used to genotype. It's, it's used to probe, um, single nucleotide polymorphisms and I it was working perfectly for me for like six months and then one day just stopped working didn't work for almost two years what? two years that procedure didn't work yeah and I tried so many things to try and fix it and yeah very recently actually maybe two months ago whatever something like that yeah I fixed it and honestly, it was just one of the best feelings I've ever had in my life. Because there was a time when I was like, I actually think I could finish this PhD and never find out what was going wrong. Um, so I guess what I'm saying is, yeah, and my postdoc and my supervisor were really helpful. Um, but ultimately, the way I solved it was through thinking about the problem. It was more like thinking about it and trying to think okay this is what i know for sure let's establish what i know about the problem i know this doesn't work i know this doesn't work i know this doesn't work whatever but i know th that this has changed the results somehow why has that particularly changed rather than just being like okay i've changed thing a let's change thing b okay that hasn't worked let's change thing c okay that hasn't worked let's change thing d which is what i was doing before and is one of the reasons it took so long to fix so yeah i would say being able to cope, understanding that failure is a natural part of the PhD. Everyone goes through that. Uh, someone in my, in my master's said to me, in your first six months, if anything works, that's a bonus. You know, I expect it to fail. So understanding failure and like being able to cope with it and knowing that it's a natural part of the PhD is one. Um, relying on help, like not being afraid to ask for help, not being afraid to collaborate, not being afraid to look to other people for ideas and inspiration and, and troubleshooting or whatever. Um, having a separate interest, I think really helps having separate interests, whether it's sport, whether it's societies, whether it's um, just literally just hanging, you know, hanging around with your friends whatever like having something else to take your mind off the phd i think really really helps yeah. um and i think obviously working hard right you've got to work hard you know there's 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 no point thinking i have fell in this trap sometimes of thinking like Oh my God, my friends working in finance or my friends working in consulting. Well, actually consulting is a bad example because they work such maybe even worse hours, but like mm -hmm. thinking my friends, my friends working a nine to five job, they're earning more money than me, right? They're years ahead of their career. Uh, in, you know, if you, they, if you were to leave academia, they're years ahead of their career. They've got a really nice flat, whatever. And then they come home 5 PM, they can do whatever they want. 5 PM, my day is barely halfway. Like I'm, barely, I'm just getting into the groove at 5 PM, you know? there's no point thinking like that right at the end of the day you're a phd student you know what you signed up for you've got huge there's huge benefits to the phd right you're you are you're your own boss if i don't want to come into the lab tomorrow i, I don't have to i can just stay at home i can read papers i can plan I can do whatever i want what other job can you do that you know so 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 i guess bearing that in mind um 
and being appreciative for what you've got. And I think Milton Keynes really, really emphasized that for me. Understanding that like ultimately as difficult as it is and as frustrating as the failures are, like what you and I do as scientists is really a privilege, right? We're so lucky to be in the UK and have, cause there's, you know, labs in other places or other countries or wherever where they haven't got anywhere near as sophisticated equipment as we've got that makes your life easier or more practical or whatever um yeah so i would i would say that those are the, those are the key things really to um to bear in mind and and certainly they've they've helped me and, and it sounds like we we share a lot of those those ideas really about the phd 100 percent like I think the biggest thing you emphasize there is, you know, when you do actually get that feeling of, you know, you've done something right, there's nothing better, is there? It's Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, honestly, Joe, I, I, I genuinely, that moment when the cast worked for the first time, I, I, I could have cried. I really, I actually, I was so glad I was in one of those rooms where it's like only one person could be in at a time. Because <laughs> genuinely, I was, I was just like, thank God for this. Like, I couldn't even... Yeah, when something works in the lab, it's it's just it's indescribable. You know, it's just like validation. You've you've worked so hard. You always have to work hard for those positive results. But when you get that positive results, oof, it hits different. Yeah. It hits different. Well, Hassan, thanks for being a guest. I've enjoyed that, and uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. My absolute pleasure, mate. Thanks so much for having me. Hi everyone, hope you enjoyed that podcast and I will see you all next time.